Well, it's great to bring God's word to you today. And we'll be basing ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So you may want to just turn there now. Well, hasn't this gentle and lowly series been an excellent one? I've really enjoyed week after week exploring something about who God is. And, and what I've enjoyed most of all is that we haven't try, gone right into the nitty gritty detail and tried to explore the hundreds of characteristics that make up who Jesus is, his words, his thoughts and his actions. But what we've done very simply is just to focus in on the very heart of Jesus. And if we go back to Hillary's foundational message at the beginning of the series, we discover in Matthew 11, the only time that Jesus refers to his heart is he describes it as gentle and lowly. And so we've unpacked in the series what this means, and we've looked at it from many different angles. So in the words of Dane Ortland, the author himself, he says that it's a bit like a multifaceted diamonds that we kind of look at from many different sides. And I've so enjoyed doing that. And so therefore there's been a deliberate repetition of truth that God is a God of mercy and a God of grace who loves you so much. And uh, we need repetition, don't, don't we? I don't, I don't know about you, but in order to get foundational truth into this thick skull of mine, my wife says I've got a bit of a big head, and even better, into my heart, I need to hear it again and again and again. You see, we're inherently lawish or legalistic. Our default is to refer back to what can I do to please God rather than gratefully receiving the fruit of what he has done for us. It's a bit like we're, we're like the child who, who on being given a birthday present by his dad, instinctively goes scrambles for his piggy bank in order to pay back his father what he's just been given. I don't know if you know any children like that. Actually, I don't, I don't know any children like that. My kids certainly aren't like that, but you get the idea. It's only as truth pounds our hearts like waves crashing against a cliff that eventually our hard legalistic hearts will crumble and God's love, mercy and grace will flood our hearts and genuinely transform our lives. So let's read together now one of the most glorious passages in scripture, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is God's word. Now, what I want to do right at the outset of this message is to pick out the two words that form the pivot of the whole passage. And those words are these, but God. These are actually two of the most powerful words in scripture. However, if we take God away from this two word phrase, we're simply left with plain old but, aren't we? Now, has any of, any of you ever been to one of those eat as much as you want restaurants? I know the Floyds, we are quite partial to a bit of eating. We're renowned for eating well. And so 
On occasion, I've been across to you know, my local Chinese or Vietnamese restaurant to partake in the eat as much as you want extravaganza that's on display there. I don't do it so much now, but when I was in my youth and my 20s, we did it. And I remember one time, a group of us going to a Vietnamese restaurant in Greenwich, and it was eat as much as you want. So we went in there competitive. We were determined to genuinely eat as much as we want. In fact, we wanted to eat them out of house and home because you know what? They've got it clever in their heads. They know that they'll put up, eat as much as you want, get loads of people, and inevitably, people just eat one, maybe two plates. But we weren't gonna do that, so we went in there, First thing we did, we ordered four starters, please. So they were like, okay. So they brought us four starters, gobbled them up, no problem. Then we ordered three main courses. And at this point, they're starting to sweat a bit. And we ate those up, took a bit more effort to do that. And then at that point, one of them sidled up to us, one of the waiters, and kind of just said, uh, do you want the bill? And we were like, no, thanks. We're not having the bill. I know what you're trying to do. No, 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 we want three more starters. They were delicious. So they bring us three more starters. And then again, a couple more main courses and then we're eating and eating. And we genuinely ate as much as we wanted. Um, and at, at that point, they got a bit like, oh, get them out of here. And when we got out, I remember we looked at the sign and we said to ourselves, that sign should say, eat as much as you want, but not too much. That's what we thought. And we've lived with that for years to come, even now, you know, in our 40s and all that, we keep referring back to that story. Do you remember, eat as much as you want, but not too much. You see, but is often a very disappointing word, particularly when it's used by us slightly pessimistic white British people. If someone's complimenting me or perhaps agreeing with something I'm saying or, or even giving me a bit of good news, inevitably, occasionally, in the back of my mind, I sometimes find myself thinking, why do I feel like there's a but coming? Have you ever experienced that? Do you know what I mean? You see, as Joe said last week, when we think of God, we sometimes have in mind a tyrant. And so the words, but God, sound like very bad news indeed. You know, I'm here busy sinning away, hoping that no one, most of all God, notices the thing that I'm doing. And then perhaps after we've done that sin, we kind of open our Bibles and we read the words, but God, and it terrifies us. However, when the word but is connected with God, we find in most cases the whole thing reversed. When we read but God in scripture, and we read it around 45 times, depending on the translation, including this passage, it nearly always signifies something very, very good rather than something bad. The great writer and preacher R.C. Sproul uh, said that but God is his favorite phrase in the Bible. And another fantastic preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached at Westminster Chapel in London, said these two words in and of themselves contain the whole gospel of Christ. Why? Because but God speaks of supernatural change. These two three-letter words, when put together, are pregnant with life, with hope, with glorious possibility. Now, let me give you a couple of examples in scripture. We know the story of Joseph, don't we? Who his brothers were jealous of him. He was his father's favorite. And so they ended up uh, doing kick, event, what they thought was killing him and throwing him into a pit and leaving him for dead. 
And then as we know the story, he gets taken to Egypt and through various circumstances, eventually becomes second in command to the Pharaoh, a very important figure. And then eventually, as we know, that his brothers come to Egypt when there's famine to get some grain. And when they eventually recognise who he is, Joseph says this to them. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. How about this in the Psalms? Often the psalmist is concerned about his enemies kind of doing bad and evil to him and seemingly getting away with it. And in Psalm 73, we read this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And how about this one? In Acts 13, Peter, speaking of Jesus, says this. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, dead. But God raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. So but God signifies hope against hope, miraculous intervention in the face of the most awful predicament. And we find here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, the most awful predicament. Our passage in Ephesians 2 starts by saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We are described as being dead in our sin. From the moment that Adam and Eve tried to usurp God and become like him in the Garden of Eden by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death entered the world. Now it wasn't physical death, at least not immediately. The sort of ticker bomb was set and our lives were going to be short, but actually it was spiritual death that took place, separation from God, the source of all life. In Genesis 2, it says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then we read a little bit later in Genesis 3, the serpent, the wily serpent coming in and saying the very opposite of what God says. He says, You will not surely die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see, that's what sin does. It says if you don't do this thing, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on a full life, on all the fun that you could experience. And it also says that doing what you want actually puts you in control of your life, your destiny. Sin is actually saying, I am God of my life. No one else is in control of me. Now, I came across this picture the other day. And uh, as you can see, um, it's a picture of a wall and on it, there's some graffiti Jesus, no name is higher. I love it. Evangelistic graffiti. Brilliant. No, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist. We shouldn't, we shouldn't graffiti. Um, but as you can see on it, it says, well played, Dave, well played. And as you can see, if you look carefully, right at the top above Jesus is the name Dave. Now, although somewhat irreverent, it did really make me chuckle. And in fact, to be honest, it actually neatly summarises what sin is. It's essentially putting yourself above God or in place of God. And by doing so, you are proclaiming, I will do what I want to gain pleasure and retain control of my life. The Bible actually speaks of this often. And there's one example in the Old Testament in Isaiah 14, when God instructs his people Israel to say the following to their enemy Babylon. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. 
I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's what sin is. And you might say to me, well, well, Andy, uh, that, that's not me. You know, I'm not someone who strives and aspires to do anything. I mean, the best that I strive to be like is maybe like my dad. You know, he's a good bloke, you know. I, I'm not one of these like, aspirational people. I don't want to be like God. I don't want to claim his kind of standing or authority. Or you might also say to me, well, I, I'm not like the description that we read further in Ephesians 2 verse uh, verses two and three, where it suggests that I'm following the course of this world, almost like a sheep, or following the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. You might say, that's not me. I'm generally a good moral person. I'm not a Satan follower, like this passage suggests, at least not in public anyway, or someone given to the lust of the flesh. In fact, I'm very kind and sensible. And if you really want to know, you know, I wash the dishes regularly. You know, I hoover from time to time. The wife enjoys that. You know, I've been known to help people struggling with buggies to carry them up the stairs from the tube. And do you know what? I even attend church pretty much every week. And maybe that's you. Maybe you are generally a good person. Maybe you're even someone who attends church every week. But do you know what? Romans 3.23 tells us plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, it's an archery term where they talk about the arrow. When it's fired, it falls short of the target. It's called sinning. And that's essentially what God says about us, that we all fall short. Now imagine that the height of the room you're sitting in right now is like a measuring scale or like a, a ruler. And 10 is at the top, which means really, really amazingly good. And zero is at the bottom, which means really terribly bad and sinful. And I ask you, where would you place, say, Adolf Hitler? I suspect many of us will place him right near the bottom. And then I might ask you, where would you place, say, Mother Teresa? And many of you will probably put her right near the top. And then I ask that very personal question, what about you? Where would you put yourself? Now, if you're humble like me, you know, you might just say, well, you know, I put myself just below the middle. You know, I'm a bit more sinful than I like to admit, so I'm not that great. And you put yourself, some of you might put yourself right near the top, and that's really good. I'm a really good person, right near the top. But actually, what is the standard? And what if I told you that the standard isn't actually the ceiling of the room you're sitting in, but it is actually the clouds above you. It's infinity. It's far above. What does that mean? Well, it means that no matter what I do, no matter how good I am, ultimately I am going to fall short of God's standards. And in Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. And what does that look like? Well, in verse 3 of Ephesians 2, it tells us, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is by nature inherently who we were, sinners, far from God, spiritually dead, who when we physically die, will face the wrath and punishment of God for our sin. That's what it tells us in the Bible. It's hard to hear, it's uncomfortable, but that is what the Bible tells us. And that is you if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story because in our predicament, in our lostness, in our helplessness to do anything about our situation, 
Two wonderful words pierce the darkness and break in like a sledgehammer. But God, but God, in light of our desperate plight, two sweeter words we could not hear. And the good news is that on the right-hand side of but God, as we read uh, these wonderful words, are even greater news, even better news. Things get better. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. What does God do? He makes us alive. How? Well, John Stott puts it much better than I ever could. He writes, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself only where man deserves to be. Jesus, God made flesh, takes our sin and the punishment we so richly deserve upon himself. The sinless saviour whipped to within an inch of his life uh, and then brutally nailed to a tree, dying the death that we deserve to die, seemingly defeated, but on the third day, rising from the grave, triumphant, defeating the power of death and sin so that we who put our trust in him are made alive. We're brought from death to life, hallelujah. So we know the problem, we've seen the solution, but what we see most gloriously in verse four is the reason why God chose to save us. And it says this, and I'll repeat what I've just said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. The reason God rescues us from the predicament we're in is because he is rich in mercy. And this isn't mere pity. This isn't like God looking down from heaven and going, oh, I suppose I should extend some mercy to this poor woman over here because she looks a little bit desperate. And then, oh God, he, lo he looks like he needs a bit of help. I, I might just extend a bit of pity to him over here. And there's no sense of feeling within that. It's not like the game of mercy in the playground. I don't know if you ever played that at school. I certainly did. The idea of the game to inflict as much pain on someone else and the loser is the person who says mercy the quickest and you do all sorts of Chinese burns and like you get their arm up behind their back and then you only stop when they say mercy, mercy! And it's kind of you revel in their pain and the only reason you don't break their arm is because you might get told off. You know, God isn't like that. Actually, rather than being driven by a sense of obligation, we clearly see the motivating force behind God's mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. In fact, this is the only time in Paul's writings, and Paul's writings are vast, where he uses the phrase great love instead of just love in, in order to underscore the fact that the reason for God's mercy is his love towards us. And it's not just here in Ephesians that we see it, but it's right through the whole of Scripture. As Joe said last week, the first and possibly most powerful way in which God describes himself in the Old Testament is when he passes by Moses on Mount Sinai and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is as profound as it is unexpected. 
unexpected because our notions of an angry God are so ingrained. We think God is there, he's an ogre, he's going to punish me and profound because this is God's own self-revelation of who he is at his heart. And the reason that we know this is the heart of God is because we see this description, this very description repeated so frequently in the Old Testament. In fact, it's quoted more than any other text in the Bible throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. In fact, mercy is the running theme through the Old Testament. It's essentially the story of God's people being frequently rebellious towards God like an unfaithful spouse and God showing unbelievable amounts of mercy by returning to her again and again. God is rich in mercy, but where we see God's mercy most gloriously is in Jesus, God made flesh. The richness of divine mercy becomes real to us, not only when we see how depraved we naturally are, but also when we see that the river of mercy flowing out of God's heart took the shape as a man. Jesus was all about mercy. You only have to look at who he spent time with, tax collectors, lepers, prostitutes and the like, and you only have to listen to his parables where he places himself as the main character, like a merciful ruler forgiving an enormous debt, like a merciful father restoring a wretched son, like a good Samaritan rescuing a dying man. God is full of mercy. And when asked by John's disciples in Luke 7, if he was the Messiah or they should expect someone else, he simply answers by saying this, go and tell John what it is you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. That right there in flesh and blood is what God is about, extending mercy to those who are in need. And as we heard earlier, God's ultimate act of mercy was displayed most wonderfully through his death on the cross, when instead of receiving punishment for our sins, we who put our trust in him receive his righteousness. As I finish, let me take you back to my story at the start. You remember the one about the Vietnamese eat as much as you want restaurant. Some of here see God's love and mercy as eat as much as you want, but not too much. You say to yourself, I get the idea of God's mercy and his love and I've heard a lot about it and that we're to enjoy it and all that, but surely there has to be a limit to it, particularly if you knew how badly I'd sinned. In fact, if you knew how willfully I've committed the same sin again and again and again, surely I've exhausted his mercy. Us lads who went to the Vietnamese restaurant genuinely thought that although the sign says, eat as much as you want, what it really meant is eat our food, but don't eat too much. But they never said that. It wasn't on the sign. We just added that bit on. It said, eat as much as you want. We added on, but not too much. And you know what? We do the same. We read the Bible and we hear messages like the one today, which talk about the rich, inexhaustible mercy of God. And we add our own, but eat as much as you want, but not too much. Enjoy my love and grace now while you are being good. But when you sin, I'm going to remove my love from you. You see, the buts that we add drain away the power of God's unending love and mercy in our life. 
every time we say things like, I know God at your right hand, there are pleasures every more, but we miss out on the great joy of experiencing him fully. Dane Ortland in his book says it really well. He says, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. In other words, God's mercy doesn't just happen in a moment and then just disappear, but actually where we are messing up, where we are going wrong, God's mercy is right there, it abides there with us and we can turn to it whenever we want. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is, it is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. Wow. So let me say to you today, stop, try, try to stop saying but, and instead start saying but God. The theologian James Montgomery Boyce wrote, May I put it quite simply, if you understand these two words, but God, recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. So let me say to you as a point of application, this week when you're going through difficult situations as we all inevitably do, you might have a bad day or you might receive some bad news or whatever it is, try and put into practice what this theologian is saying. Try saying to yourself, but God, it might be that you've lost a job. Speak to your soul, man, I've lost a job, it's hard, but God has plans for me to prosper and not to harm me. This is more than just positive thinking. Oh, I've just got to be positive and be unreal about the situation. No, no, no. What it's doing is it's involving God in your situation and saying, God is with me in this. It's hard, but he will see me through. Try and do it this week. You know, if you come across the difficulty, just try saying, but God, and then bring some truth into your life. And today you may be sitting here not a believer. And today maybe you've heard some of this stuff. And actually today is your ultimate but God moment. You've been clinging to pride for so long, thinking that you can make this life work, that you're the captain of your soul, but you're slowly becoming, realizing that actually I can't do this on my own. Actually, no matter how much I do and what, how much I earn and what, whatever I achieve, ultimately it doesn't fully satisfy. There's still a hole there. And actually, this is a moment where God intervenes. He comes longing to rescue you. And all you need to do is reach out your hand and by his mercy, he will rescue you. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your mercy, your wonderful, inexhaustible mercy towards us. Lord, that you're a God of compassion, a God of love, a God who draws near to us. And Lord God, I thank you so much that you have saved us, that when we've put our trust in you, you've come rushing to us and received us as your own. And so God, we say thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you do. And we love you so much, Lord Jesus. Amen.